You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. It's just one week until the new series of F1 Beyond the Grid begins. And to get you in the mood for more revealing, in-depth conversations with Formula One's biggest stars in 2024, I've delved into the archives and chosen a full interview with an absolute legend. A man who will go down as one of the most successful technical directors in history. Ross Braun masterminded all seven of Michael Schumacher's World Championships in his roles at Benetton and Ferrari. He also guided the Scuderia to six Constructors titles in a row from 1999. But 2024 marks 15 years since perhaps his greatest achievement in Formula One. Back in 2009, he transformed a broken Honda team with seemingly no future at the end of 2008 into Braun Grand Prix. He bought the team for just one British pound and it went on to become the first and so far only constructor to win both world championships in their debut season. In 2019, I sat down with Ross to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Braun Grand Prix's miracle season and he gave me the compelling inside story of a true sporting fairy tale. Ross, great to have you on the show. Um, now, this time we're going to talk uh, about Braun Grand Prix. Crazy to think that it's 10 years uh, since all that. Does it feel a long time ago? It does, actually, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago that I was reminded it was the 10th anniversary. And we were running the car a couple of times this year in celebration of it. And it was really when that started to come up that I uh, reminded myself or I was reminded that uh, it was 10 years. A lot's happened in those 10 years. I'd like to call it one of the greatest fairy tales in the history of Formula One. Is that how you view it? In some ways, yes. I think there was a lot of, if I might put it, substance to it, in that it, it wasn't a freak. It happened for various reasons, which all came together at the same time. And... Yeah, there was a huge amount of work put in that car, a huge amount of investment, Honda uh, investment. And so, although it was a small team in itself, the team that had designed the car and the team that developed the car was huge, as big as anyone in Formula One. So there was this whole machine behind it that created the car, which then disappeared. And the nucleus of the team were left to run and race it. Appearance was of a small minnow, sort of David and Goliath type situation. But in reality, we were a Goliath before we became a David, and that's what created the car, and gave us the, the tools to do the job. But it was a fairy tale year. I think the contrast between the despair in November when you know, we were made aware of the intent for Honda to withdraw, and then the elation in March winning the first race is hard to hard to describe. 
can you talk us through the situation at the end of 2008? I mean, the financial crisis was in full swing. When did you first, for example, get an idea that Honda were going to pull out of Formula One? Um, really, not until they told us, because quite genuinely, you know, Nick Fry and I were called to a meeting in London. And in fact, at the uh, Honda headquarters in Slough. And we genuinely didn't know what the meeting was for. We'd been there before for strategy meetings and it wasn't completely uncommon to to meet at the Honda offices in Slough. Sometimes Japanese executives would prefer to stay out the limelight and visit the factory, so we would meet there. So it wasn't the first time that I'd, I'd been there to meet Honda executives. But I think the point when I walked into the room and the Honda executive was crying, I knew there was a problem. Uh, I mean, he was really upset. And he uh, he explained that there'd been a, a board decision to withdraw from Formula One because of the economic crisis and the fact that Honda were having to make a lot of very difficult decisions with their business. And they didn't, they didn't feel that being seen in Formula One was the right thing for them at a time when they were making some pretty dramatic uh, decisions about their company and their employees. Was an immediate withdrawal the only option on the table or did you discuss keeping going as a manufacturer team for 2009? Uh, No, it was immediate. And in fact, you know, their idea, which we quickly managed to change their views, was that we'd go back and turn the lights off and shut the doors. I mean, literally, we'd go back to the factory and just tell everyone to go home. And, of course, with an organization of the size we had, which was seven or 800 people, you can't do that in the UK. You know, there, are, there are procedures to go through. Uh, there's consultation periods, there's discussions. You can't just close down a company in that way. It was kind of surprising in a way that they had that view because they had a lot of experts there. The next phase of the same meeting was Nick and I being taken out of a small office with a one-to-one with a Honda executive to a big office, which was a long table lined with experts, employment experts, lawyers, redundancy specialists, etc. So it was a little surprising that they, they assumed that's what was going to happen because that couldn't happen. And the first thing Nick and I did was to call our legal counsel, Caroline McGrory, financial director Nigel Kerr, our HR specialist, and one or two other people, and asked them to come to Slough straight away, uh, pronto, because we had a problem. And so they all came, and we really didn't engage with any of the that group until we were all there. And you know, I felt we needed to have the expertise and knowledge that you know, our group of specialists had to decide how we move forward. What about knowledge of the 2009 car? Were you aware at this point that you had an absolute belter there and and with the double diffuser and did it sort of make it all the more frustrating? We didn't know what we had. I mean, there'd been a spell when I think it was August time. The objective of the new rules was to reduce downforce by 50%. And it was quite clear from the work we were doing, we weren't losing 50%. We were losing far less than that. And 
there was a period in the second half of 2008 when I sat in a technical meeting and made it clear that we were not losing 50% and should we, in fact, be looking at something more draconian to achieve the objectives because the new rules didn't seem to be achieving the objectives. And I remember being accused of scaremongering that and I kind of a little light went off in the back of my head that maybe we were exceptional uh, and quite genuinely the the double diffuser was not something which was seen as some massive dramatic breakthrough I mean we were looking pretty good anyway in terms of aerodynamic performance and the um, you know the diffuser design was something which was an enhancement on that it wasn't night and day I mean, obviously, as things developed the next few months, then you know, we, we became a more and more, more and more focused on the, the diffuser design to get the most from it. But at that stage, it was kind of an interesting idea. So when Honda pulled the plug, I would say we, we felt we had a decent car, but there was no signs at that stage that it was going to be so uh, dramatically better than anything else, certainly at the beginning of the season. So what happened next? You've had the meeting in Slough with the Honda executives. When did it become apparent that you guys might be able to save the team? I mean, we were in a situation that none of us had experienced before, so we didn't really know what to do. But the first thing we were successful in doing was persuading the Honda board to at least keep the team going for a while because there was a chance we could try and sell it. And... The, the early attempts were definitely to find a buyer of the team. And, of course, there was a lot of publicity about the situation. And you know, the team was put up for sale. For sale notices went up. And we started to entertain prospective buyers. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, with the economic climate as it was, there was not going to be any any serious buyers, any, anyone with any uh, substance. It wasn't going to be a car manufacturer or another major blue-chip investor move in because things were fairly dire in that period. But we got you know, a whole queue of chances who could see an opportunity. And as we gradually worked through them, and it became clearer and clearer that there was not going to be a serious buyer of the team not one that we would want to work for, and that was the criteria. We always asked ourselves when they walked through the door, or maybe when they walked out of the door, uh, is this somebody we would want to work for? Because if we didn't, if we weren't positive about it, how could we ask our people to work for them? And one of the situations was that Honda was offering a pretty attractive redundancy package for everybody. So it would have been unfair to carry on and for people not to have the opportunity to take that redundancy package with something that was not substantive and not not uh, viable. So as time went on, it became clearer that it was going to be us or nothing. So we've, we, we defaulted, quite frankly, into the arrangement we came to, but we were able to offer Honda a solution which cost them no more than they would have done if they'd, they'd closed the company. And 
in many ways, and it's proven to be the case, a much fairer solution for all the people working there than than closing it would have been. And Honda, to their credit, accepted that. And uh, it was a difficult thing for them because management buyouts is a as an unknown concept in Japan. It was certainly very alien to them, the the idea that we would buy the company and certainly buy the company for for a very token fee. And they were going to leave enough funding in the company for it to survive a year. How quickly did this all happen? Had you made that conclusion by Christmas or was it well into the new year? Um, I think after Christmas, it was into the new year. I mean, we had a someone who'd been fairly uh, enthusiastically pursuing the purchase of the company, I would say was exposed as a fraudster just over Christmas. We'd had our suspicions from the very early stages, but we had to we had to entertain it for a reasonable amount of time. But we put a we put a detective agency on him because we were starting to get our you know starting to get worried and I remember Christmas Eve, we had the report. Nick and I had the report about the guy, and turned out it was a fraudster who changed his name. He goes down in history as one of the biggest property purchasers in the UK. He took the Irish banks for millions, and it took us a couple of days with a private detective agency to find out who he was. And yet the Irish banks had quite happily given the guy millions, and he had a commercial property portfolio in london that was was built on sand and uh, it all collapsed and he ended up in jail so um, those are sort of people we were dealing with it was quite it was entertaining and educational i think would be the uh, so that anyway i remember that happened on christmas eve and so i think getting over christmas that was probably when we really started to focus on the fact that maybe if this was to survive we had to do it ourselves and from a technical point of view, where were you at at the same time? Had you been putting this Mercedes deal together prior to that, while you were still working out who well, was going to it? Was a, it was a credit to Formula One that they, um, when the crisis hit, oh. we, I remember a meeting we had with all the teams. We explained our plan that we we're going to try and survive, either with somebody buying us or, well, it would have been with somebody buying us because of that idea. At that stage, we had no plans to buy the company ourselves. But the only way we could survive is with an engine. And both Mercedes and Ferrari offered to supply an engine. Mercedes fitted the car more easily than the Ferrari. And, of course, it's a Mercedes engines was just up the road. So uh, it was a credit to both companies, again, that they were so willing to support uh, supporters in that situation. But we opted for the Mercedes engine. And Mercedes supplied all the drawings so we could carry on. You know, we didn't have a, an agreement with them, a firm agreement, because we had no money at that stage. But they were good enough to supply all the technical information so we could get on and you know, theoretically uh, have an installation in the car. And if we were able to find a deal and pay the funding, then we'd have a Mercedes engine. And there's an interesting point. When we did get the funding from Honda, Norbert Haug, who'd been very helpful in getting this whole thing together, came to me (laughs) rather sheepishly and said, look, the board are a little bit worried about your future. And what guarantees can you offer us for the fee for the engine? So I said, oh, we'll pay it. 
He said, well, I know you pay it, but we're worried about it. No, I'll pay it now. <laughs> so we paid the whole season. And we had the money from Honda, and there was no point in not paying it. So we paid for the whole season before <laughs> we even front. started, yeah. So Norbert was chuffed about that because that, that de-risked it from his point of view because he was taking a chance. All those guys were taking a chance on us. Mm. How problematic was the installation of the engine? You say it fitted better than Ferrari, but how much of a compromise? Was yeah, it? it wasn't ideal in that the crankshaft height was higher. So we couldn't, we didn't have time to redesign the gearbox. So the gearbox had to be, I'm trying to think now whether we were able to modify the the bell housing or we had to put an adapter plate on. I can't honestly remember. I think we were able to modify the front of the gearbox enough to, to get it on. No, we would have done. We would have modified it enough. But the... The output shaft height of the engine was higher than the Honda, so effectively the the gearbox was, I think, ten or twelve mil higher than it should have been. So the whole rear assembly, the suspension, the gearbox, everything was ten or twelve mil higher than it would have been. So in fact, we lost a little bit of performance because the centre of gravity of all that sort of stuff was much higher than it should have been. Uh, but that was a compromise we were willing to make because otherwise we wouldn't have gone racing. So what was stunning in that period was just the commitment and devotion of the people in the factory because they had no surety of what was going to happen. And they worked as hard, if not harder, than I've ever seen before in a Formula 1 team. A period when you know, you would have thought the uncertainty would have been such a massive distraction. But they didn't. They did the opposite. It was that, that resilience and that situation drew them all together. It was something very special. There's more from Ross coming up after this short message. Are you still on the hunt for the perfect addition to your team? Well, look no further. Let Indeed do the matching for you. With more than 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed is not just a job search website. It's your ultimate hiring partner. Its powerful matching engine ensures you find top quality candidates quickly so you can get back to what matters most, growing your business. Say goodbye to the endless busy work of scheduling interviews, screening resumes and managing communication. Indeed streamlines the entire hiring process, allowing you to connect with potential hires faster than ever before. And here's the best bit. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job websites. And don't just take my word for it. Experience the difference for yourself. I know people that have been in your shoes. So I've seen firsthand how overwhelming the hiring process can be. And I can't help but think that if they'd known about Indeed back then, it would have saved so much time and energy. With more than 140 million qualifications and preferences analysed daily, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning and evolving to meet your specific hiring needs. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets at finding the perfect fit for your team. So join the ranks of more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide who trust Indeed to help them hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com grid. Just go to Indeed.com grid right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com grid. Terms and conditions apply. Need a hire? You need Indeed. 
We haven't talked about the drivers yet. Jensen Button, Rubens Barrichello. Um, can you remember breaking the news to them and what they said? And Yeah, I think Jensen, um, Jensen had just signed a new contract with Honda. And so in some ways, financially, he was pretty well off because Honda settled the outstanding contract. So he, you know, financially, he had no complaints. Um, but of course, he'd never drive. And, and a, you know, as a Formula 1 driver, to drop out for a season would have been risky. You know, you get forgotten quite quickly. But there were no seats left, uh, which was fortunate for us because I think if there had been, undoubtedly Jensen would have would have taken one because he couldn't take that risk. Well, Rubens was coming towards the end of his career and was probably you know, less appealing for other teams. So he you know, had less options anyway. I mean, Jensen had no options and, and Rubens had even less. <laughs> so, uh, and in some ways, the timing was very fortuitous because you know, telling the drivers at the end of November that, that you don't know if they've got to drive next year. If it had been earlier, they would have found other drives and we wouldn't have had the you know, fabulous team of drivers that we ended up with. How important was experience for you in 2009? I mean, I guess you really needed two drivers that weren't going to crash the whole time. Yeah, I mean, there had been some negotiations going on with Bruno Senna for the other drive. Bruno Senna had quite a lot of uh, commercial backing and there'd been some discussions with him. But in the end, we concluded that we wanted a safe pair of hands with Rubens and it was absolutely the right decision because Rubens did a fabulous job that year. You know, we went to those first few races with very few spares, certainly no spare chassis. And if either one of them had, had crashed, uh, we would have been in trouble. I think it was a testament to them both that uh, they were able to race as hard as they did and compete as hard as they could, and they just didn't do any damage. And that was so valuable to us as a team in that stage. So that uh, that was a vital element. In fact, the whole year, neither of them really did much damage at all. I think... Jensen had a off at Spa and there were one or two other minors, but they both were invaluable in the um, in the modest amount of damage they did during the year for a team which had limited resources. Now we'll come on to the races, but can I just ask you to talk us through the first winter test at Barcelona? I think you rolled the car out at Silverstone, but had a first proper test was in Barcelona. Yeah, we did, did, um, we did a short circuit at um, Silverstone. I remember Jensen even there saying, well, you know, considering they've changed the rules, this car doesn't feel too bad. Straight out of the box. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then Barcelona, there's there's a little bit of variance as time has passed on the sort of version. But what I remember is you know, Jensen having a run in the car and not being particularly complimentary about the way it was behaving. And Shelf saying to him, well, okay, but you're the second fastest car out there. And he was kind of telling us to stop taking the mickey. And that was the case. Car was clearly quick. And uh, once we said about tuning it, and of course there was an assumption that we were running low fuel as a uh, yeah, sponsor chaser. And we weren't. You know, we, had, we had 50 kilos in or whatever the, the amount was that was a sensible race fuel at that stage. And we just set about getting to know the car. So it was good from the beginning. And it was interesting because we missed the first Barcelona test. 
some of the guys in the company had been doing the analysis and the the simulations and they said you know what these cars don't look very quick so either the tires have changed to a degree that we haven't anticipated or they're just not very quick and our predictions from the aerodynamic performance we had and the car we had was a couple of seconds faster than than they were doing in Barcelona the first test and we thought yeah we've got something wrong here somewhere uh, but secretly we're hoping that we hadn't uh, of course, we arrived at the test, and it may not have been a couple of seconds, but it was certainly quite a decent margin in front of uh, the rest of the opposition. And so before we get to Australia, what about Braun Grand Prix? Um, did, did you always envisage calling the team Braun Grand Prix, or were other options on the uh, table? No, we didn't. And it was um, there were a lot of names talked about. And uh, none of them resonated. There were some old names that had been discussed. Because, uh, of course, the team originally was Tyrrell. So it, its origins were Tyrrell, which was bought uh, by BAR, and then BAR was bought by Honda. So it's actually one of the oldest teams in Formula 1. A few name changes, but it, company registration goes back, I think, to the the 80s, early 80s or maybe even the 70s, I can't remember. But it's one of the, I think it's the second or third oldest team in Formula 1. Did you discuss so, calling it Tyrrell? Uh, it was discussed, yeah. Mm. Uh, whether that would be... And I honestly can't remember all the reasoning behind it. There were some strange names that came out that really were not... Uh, I think Pure Racing was one of them. That I'm glad we didn't call it that. But Caroline McGrory, who was our legal counsel, because it was... You know, that sort of stuff was very much a, a group discussion. There were some things which people took individual responsibility for, but we used to have a, a weekly management meeting and uh, Caroline McGrory came up with the idea and I must admit I was flattered and nobody seemed to object. So <laughs> that's how it came about. How proud did you feel seeing your name above the door? Oh, very. It was a real honour. Yeah, very special. One of very many special moments that year. Here's the man who didn't know he had a team, didn't know he had a driver, who's now going to take victory in Melbourne. Jensen Button crosses the line, takes the chequered flag. Jensen Button's a winner again. Braun GP are winners on their first race appearance. And not only that, it's a 1-2 finish. Button from Barrichello. The smiles are on Ross Braun. What a result. So you finished first and second at the Australian Grand Prix. Um, how much of a surprise was that? And did the level of your dominance make you feel that, my goodness, we've got a championship challenger here? I don't think you ever think that. You're just looking for the thing that's going to trip you over. I think any team that dominates in Formula One, everyone knows that it takes tremendous effort to maintain it. And... The correction is just around the corner. You know, the in any of those periods, I've been fortunate enough to be with a very competitive car and team. You're just fearful of of you know, what's gonna you know what's gonna happen. You know, it will end. You know, it can't go on indefinitely, however long it happens. So you enjoy it, but there is a, a knowing that it's going to stop and. Um, yeah, you know, it won't go on forever. 
and enjoy it, but you've got to work really hard to maintain it as long as you can. So it was almost, we thought we'd done a good job. The work really starts now. But it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun to uh, to enjoy that success, having been through that experience over the winter. Well, Jensen won six of the opening seven races. How did being on that role of success compare to previous experiences with Ferrari or Benetton? It was different and it was our own thing. I mean, you know, as part of Ferrari, you're part of a, uh, a long tradition of history, a you know, most famous team in Formula One. It's this, this huge brand and history and team and, and you're a small part of it. You know, wherever you are, you're a small part of it. This was a team where we were all the major part of it. Yeah, it was different in that perspective. But I have to say that early part of the year was pretty absorbed with all the arguments about the validity of the car design. And you know, that took the edge off it, but then I took the view that this is what happens when you dominate. I'd seen it in Ferrari. I mean, we dominated with Ferrari and and a lot of the team's efforts were going towards proving that we shouldn't have been doing what we were doing. It was, it's a normal situation in Formula One. People are always looking for the easy answers. And if you're working for a large corporation and you persuaded the company to invest several hundred million to go Formula One racing and you're getting spanked, the easiest thing to say is, oh, well, they're cheating. Hmm. And we can't cheat because we're a large corporation. It's a very easy excuse to give. And I know that's what some of the team principals were telling their boards of directors, and that's how they cover themselves. So yeah, that's the nature of, of you know, the competition, the intensity of the competition in Formula 1. And I still hear it now. You know, I still get people come to me and tell me why somebody's winning at the moment because they've got this or they've got that, or they've found a way around a rule or this, that, and the other. It's just the nature of Formula 1. So... We had a pretty intense battle off the track as well as on the track. That took a lot of my attention in that first half of uh, 2009. Was it clear to you from the outset that the major threat was going to be Red Bull? Yeah, I mean, they they were a pretty aggressive team from a competition point of view. Adrian was in full flow, big organisation, very reactive, very nimble, very responsive i think you know there was there was a lot of tension in that period because they felt aggrieved by what we'd done with the design of the car and adrian felt he'd he'd proposed that design previously and it'd been rejected by the fia i don't know the details but that there was a bit of um, tension let's put it that way i think they they were a team on the rise for sure and uh they were in a good place they had all the resources Whilst all the teams were affected by the economic crisis, they were a team that you know, were potentially less distracted by it because of the structure of their ownership and their, the passion of their, their owners. And you know, So they were a team that was still charging ahead. So, yeah, I think Red Bull were. And when I, say, when I said earlier that you know, things are such a circumstance of history, the history was in that period that, Two teams, McLaren and Ferrari, you know, fighting tooth and nail the year before. And you know, these new regulations were coming 
and we were devoting 100% of what we were doing to the new regulations. And they weren't because they were fighting each other so intensely. And they both started the season in a relatively poor place um, because they hadn't put the the resources into the new regulations as early as, um, as anyone else. I mean, one of the things I always find fascinating when new regulations come along is when you ask questions about the interpretation of regulations and you're the first one to ask that question, you know that you're ahead of the game. And it happened with uh, the Braun GP in 2008, 2009, and it happened with the engine with uh, Mercedes in 2014. We were asking, or Andy Cowell was asking questions of the FIA about the engine six or 12 months before the same questions were being asked by other manufacturers. So you know you're ahead of the game. And and that's one of the factors that prevailed in 2009 that two of the major uh, competitors had had such an intense year the year before, they'd, they hadn't put the effort into the new the new regulations. And from a results point of view, you were very much ahead of the game up to about mid-season, hugely yeah. dominant with Jensen. And then it got a little bit harder, didn't it? It was, a, it was a, definitely a championship of two halves for you guys. Yeah, I mean, that? the concept of the car was easily cop- you know, it was easy to copy. I know there was a lot of talk about, you know, we had the gearbox designed around it. It's not true. I mean, the gearbox was defined by the time we came up with the idea. We had the same challenge of fitting that concept around the design of the car as anyone else. Uh, and in, in a way, that was why it was vulnerable, because we didn't have a car that was truly completely devoted to the concept because the idea came along quite late so it was easily it was easy for other teams to to copy it and we had no resource to develop the car i think we had one or two relatively modest updates during the season because you know we we had limited budget you know quite honestly we were mindful of being able to carry on into 2010 with some modest sponsorship and still surviving so we were yeah, we had the everything was battened down. You know, we were spending as little money as possible, and we were um, being as cautious as possible. So, teams, you know, the adage that if you stand still in Formula One, you go backwards. It was a perfect demonstration of that. You know, a car that was dominant for the first half of the season was not dominant in the second half. And one of the things that helped or saved us was Ruben's two wins after that. You know, the fact that, and I think, I don't know if Jensen acknowledges it, but I think he got a bit tight in the second half of the season. I think, you know, he was the world champion to be beaten. He was, it was a world championship to lose. And I think that for someone who's never been there before, that's a heavy load to carry. And he, he got a little bit tight and got a little bit involved in things that probably he wouldn't have got involved in normally. Um, so it did start to go downhill uh, in a worrying way for the second half of the year. Saved, as I say, by a couple of great race wins by Rubens. How nervous did you get? Pretty nervous because, uh, you know, you get those opportunities rarely. And to have been that dominant and lose a championship would have been so disappointing again, particularly because of the circumstances. And we'd also started negotiations with Mercedes by then to to sell the team. So 
that was another factor. So first half of the year was sort out the legal challenges to our design. Second half of the year was start to find a solution with Mercedes to buy the team because they were keen to have their own team. Can, so there was a lot of other stuff going on apart from the racing. Can I ask who approached who with Mercedes? Uh, Norbert was always very keen on on right. Mercedes having their own team. And I think there was the relationship with McLaren was becoming to a, coming to a natural end. McLaren were getting more and more ambitious on the road car side, which was not fitting in well with Mercedes plans. So, I mean, they'd achieved a tremendous amount together. But you know, like a lot of these things, it was coming to a natural close. So Norbert was the architect of the purchase of Braun GP by Mercedes. This is an advertisement for better help. Relationships, they're the fabric of our lives, aren't they? Take a moment to think about one that really stands out to you. Maybe it's a friend, a colleague or a family member. I take a huge amount of care to ensure I nurture my connections with the people I care about. And travelling as much as I do, it's incredibly important to me that my loved ones feel seen and supported even if I can't always be there in person. And when I am at home, it's so important to be present mentally as well as physically. Not to be thinking about work while having dinner, but engaging properly with the family. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some difficulties to overcome, because we're only human after all. And we all know that relationships aren't always a walk in the park. They take effort and good communication. And you know what? That effort pays off big time. Because when both parties are committed to making it work, that's when magic happens. And that's where therapy can help you. With the guidance of a therapist, you can learn valuable communication skills, gain insights into your emotions, and discover healthier ways to navigate conflicts. BetterHelp is here for you every step of the way, helping you make every connection great. Because when you invest in yourself, you're investing in all of your relationships as well. And if you're thinking about starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? They provide access to UK mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise and no referral is needed. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com grid. That's betterhelp.com grid. Can I ask you about two races in particular? Um, first up, Hungary must have been an emotional roller coaster for you, given what happened with Felipe Massa and his accident and the spring coming from Rubin's car. Can you just talk us through what happened? Well, when the accident happened, we had no idea what had been the cause. And it was only you know, sometime afterwards that the facts started to emerge. And we realized that. Yeah, there was a transverse spring. You know, the cars had uh, side springs and then they had a like a transverse rocker arrangement and the damper shaft snapped. Spring came out. I mean, the chances of it happening were genuinely a million to one. I mean, when you see the slow motion, the spring kind of bounces, looks like it's going to go off the track and then somehow kicks back onto the track and hits Felipe. So it was a pretty shocking event and and one which... Uh, yeah, debris from race cars is you know happens it's uh nobody wants it to and you all feel responsible but it it is a 
uh, a factor and um, knowing Felipe very well and uh, being a friend, that was another aspect. So we were all completely shocked by what happened. Fortu fortunately, he recovered, and um, but it was scary. And, and when your car's involved in that way, then, of course, you feel terrible about it. So um, that was a pretty unpleasant start of the season. A happier memory would be Monza to score a 1-2. Rubens this time taking mm. the win ahead of Jensen. What was it like to to win at Monza, you know, with all your links with Ferrari and the Tifosi? Again, you know, another, another special moment in in uh, that season i'd say there's nothing like winning at monza with a ferrari but that was as close as it got i think what was nice is the the genuine joy in the paddock for rubens to win a race i think he'd uh he has huge respect i think a genuine joy in the whole Formula one pit lane was um everyone came out and clapped as he went down the pit lane it was very special and a critical race for us because we were under siege by then and we had to push back. And uh, I think Red Bull thought they had us at that stage and we there was a few kicks from the corpse still that we managed to... <laughs> and that was one of them. And now here comes Jensen Button, the 2009 world champion. Look at the relief, look at the joy. It's all now out in the open. Broad are the Constructors' champions. Jensen Button is world champion. They didn't believe it almost after qualifying yesterday. Down in 14th, his worst ever qualifying of the season. And yet, he's come through. We are world champions! World champions! Can you remember your emotions of actually getting it done, getting the job done in Brazil? I think is there a picture of you giving Jensen a bear hug? I think I've seen it. Yeah, much. probably. <laughs> Can you remember now, ten years on, just how it felt? Um, you know, my general impressions of the weekend. It was obviously incredibly tense. Either team, either driver, could win the championship. As I say, we'd been under siege for a number of races and we were fighting back and qualifying was, was sort of very eventful. It was a mixed weather qualifying and I think both Vettel and ourselves got it wrong. They got it wrong a little bit more than we did. So we were down the grid with, with Jensen. Rubens was quite well up there from memory. Obviously refueling at that stage, so... You know, that was a added element. And uh, so I think Rubens was probably a bit like we may well have. The thing I do remember is Jensen coming to me on Sunday morning and saying, look, don't worry, I'm going to get it sorted today. And that was really unusual for him. He never, he never said things like that. And uh, his dad was there. And I think his, him and his dad had had a talk. And I think he'd realized that he'd, He'd not been delivering as well as he had been at the beginning of the season. He knew in himself. He drove a superb race. I mean, yeah, his overtaking was sensational. He just did everything he needed to do on that day. And he drove a fantastic race. Yeah, it was 
strong when he needed to be, was sensible when he needed to be. He just drove a fantastic race. And uh, and he told me that's what he was going to do before the race started. <laughs> Ross, how important was it for you to get it done then rather than go down to the wire to the last race? Well, you just don't know what's going to happen. And getting it done a race or two before the end of the season was no doubt uh, much more comfortable than leaving it till the end. I can't remember ever feeling so much relief as I did that day, so much emotion. You know, I had some very, very special times in my career with with Benetton and then Ferrari and lots of very special times with Ferrari. But I think just the, the whole circumstance and the whole background, the fact that Ferrari, I worked for Jean Todd and I worked for Lucas and Montezemolo and I worked for the Ferrari as a, a Braun GP, that was it, it was me. You know, a whole team, don't get me wrong, but there was no one above me giving me guidance or supporting me. It was, it was me. <laughs> the buck stopped. And and that that brought different pressures, but also brought different rewards when, when it was successful. And um, so it was very, very special and something which I'll never forget. Your proudest achievement? I think so. I mean, I, I've been extremely lucky in being proud of a lot of things, but that was a very special year. And I think because of all the other circumstances, not because we won the championship, it was because of all the other circumstances. Very, I've had very many special times in motor racing and um, championships with Benetton, first race win, first... Yeah, I, was, I was part of a team that won Le Mans, sports car championship, and then, of course such a brilliant period at Ferrari and not just the race wins but the emotions there and the friendships and the experience and the connection that you have with the Italian fans and the Tifosi is something which is totally unique but Braun GP was different and something you couldn't uh, anticipate couldn't create I mean you know we travel EasyJet so every Sunday night we'd be on an easy jet flight back to the UK with all the fans uh, having a beer. And that was something I'd not experienced before. So it was just totally different experience and uh, one I'd uh, never change in any way. Yeah, that was uh, very special. Ross provides incredibly insightful detail when telling the story of that unbelievable season. It still feels like a movie today, and you should definitely watch the Braun series on Disney Plus if you haven't already. Ross features heavily alongside Jensen Button, Rubens Barrichello, and the other key people inside Braun Grand Prix. Seeing the dramatic twists and turns throughout the season, the controversies, the race highlights, and the celebrations at the end really brings the memories of 2009 flooding back. Ross continued as team principal when Mercedes bought Braun Grand Prix in 2010, but he left after the 2013 season having been unable to break Red Bull's dominance with Sebastian Vettel. He returned just over three years later as F1's managing director of motorsports before officially retiring from the sport at the end of 2022. Well, that's day 24 done. We'll continue our countdown to the new series of F1 Beyond the Grid tomorrow. So speak to you then. Keep up with the latest F1 action 
on F1 Nation. A superb finish to the line! Race previews, post-race insights and exclusive interviews from the heart of the F1 paddock. Magnificent team effort all round. Huge win for us today. And We're pushing at the limit. We must have just got something wrong. Oscar, can we just grab you on the way out? A very, very cool day. It's been a weekend to remember. You'll hear from the drivers, team principals, engineers and F1 experts from around the world. Really, really nice to feel that atmosphere there in the garage. Having the two of them in the points, quite impressive. Those next few positions are worth millions of dollars. The combination is unbeatable. New episodes every Monday. Search your podcast app for F1 Nation.